All right, so today we're going to be starting a new series. This is a short series. Uh, it will get us through, well, maybe not short, five or six weeks. But I want to, to express to you that this is a, going to be a very difficult series. This is not going to be a popular one. In our Wednesday small groups, we started a study on giants that need to be slayed and slain, slayed, you know what I meant. Um, but uh, we, ha- we had an interesting lesson a couple weeks ago about how the Israelites became comfortable in their camp and they refused to go down to fight Goliath because they had food and they had shelter and they had everything they needed. And in their comfort, they were content. But yet the story involves a giant who was, who was spitting in their faces and in the faces of their God saying, you need to come out and fight me. Quit being cowards. You need to come and address me because I'm not going anywhere until you come and encounter me. So it was little David who came and, and decided that he would fight Goliath. And we know the story. He slayed Goliath and, uh, and uh, they got victorious or they had victory that day. But the phrase that stood out to me was the the phrase about the contentment because they were comfortable. And so thinking about that for the last couple weeks, I felt like the Lord's telling me that we need to do a series on uncomfortable truths. These are certain truth statements that the Bible has laid out for us, things that we wrestle with, things that we don't like talking about. They're things that really convict us and things that really challenge us and They are things that make us very uncomfortable. And so I've been working on a series in this light. I've been working on several different lessons and studies that could go with this. And I had a hang-up. This week I had, you know, usually it happens on Sunday mornings or Saturday mornings when I'm praying that God will help me to know what to preach on on Sunday. And so he'll wake me up at 3, 4, 5 in the morning, and he'll just talk to me and help me to flush out the ideas so that when I get to the office, I know how to prepare. This week has been a very odd week because almost every day this week, God has awakened me at about 4 o'clock in the morning and kept me awake for two or three hours. In some cases, won't let me go back to sleep. But, but the point is that he just kept talking and showing me things. And, and so when I got ready, I mean, I knew what I was going to talk about yesterday to Paige. I said, oh, this isn't going to take home. I'm going to go to the office, knock out the prayer stuff, and I'm going to be right back. And, and then I came home and I said, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow because there was a hang-up. There was, there was a little detailed hang-up. And I'll tell you this first. Uh, I've had in, in the last week, I had, had this vision that kept coming to me. And it, it all has to do with our entry into the body of Christ, into our faith. And, and you all remember when, when you prayed the prayer to invite Christ into your life and you went and you were baptized. And for many believers, that's where it stops because they've checked that box. I'm now a child in the, in the kingdom. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to read. I don't have to study. I don't have to worship. I'm good to go now, right? And so it, it stops. And I started thinking about in this vision, you see, the Lord would keep showing me our sanctuary, and he would show me the baptistry. And, and, and when we do baptisms, we go to the baptistry, and we, we are immersed in water, and we're washed, or, or, it's symbolic, our sins are washed away, we're replenished spiritually, and then we get out of the water, and we enter into the world. 
And that's when it starts to fall apart. And so what the Lord was showing me is that if I would leave the faucet on back here, that what would happen is, and this is a metaphor, remember this is a dream, this is not, this is a vision, this is not reality, but the sanctuary would slowly begin to fill up with water to the point that eventually this whole building would be completely filled with water like an aquarium. And when we all come to worship, we will come and we will be completely immersed on an ongoing basis in the presence of God in this faith that we now have. And that will change everything about us. You know, I, I forget what percent of the human body is made up of water. Isn't it like two-thirds th- two or something like that of water? And, and so here's the cool thing is that when you go out and you work a lot and you don't drink enough water, what happens? You get dehydrated and you can eventually die from it. Isn't that the same spiritually? Isn't it possible that you could dehydrate spiritually to the point of death? If you don't take in enough nutrients to keep your body lubricated, saturated, I started thinking, well, I'm talking about two different things. I'm talking about the spirit, and I'm talking about water. And so the two really have a disconnection. And then God reminded me, oh, but you forgot about John chapter 3. When, when, when Jesus met Nicodemus at night, and Nicodemus said, hey, dude, um, we know that you're a teacher from God. We know this. But you know, let me stop for a minute. Just knowing who Christ is isn't the, the step, the last step to salvation. Just knowing who Christ is doesn't get, grant you entry into heaven, right? Because James tells us even the devil believes in God and he, he trembles. So just knowing who Jesus is is not 100% truth that you're going straight to heaven. But, but, but he comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God and that no one could perform the miracle signs that you are doing unless God were with him. We know this. Now, some of the Pharisees may be in denial about it, but I'm here because I want answers. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is a phrase that he, he struggled with. He didn't understand it. Jesus answered again, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. So all of a sudden, this this little vision that God gave me, or dream, you know, sometimes I'm awake pondering it, sometimes I'm asleep thinking about it. But, But here's the thing, how can we tell, how can we tell if somebody is dehydrated? Uh, there was years ago, I was playing in a volleyball tournament when I was young much younger, and and I was getting all worked up. We were playing game after game. It was like 95 degrees out, and I didn't care. It was awesome. We were dominating. It was amazing. And then all of a sudden, my heart started racing. I mean, it was really racing fast, and I was getting a little bit dizzy. And so the, the, it was at church camp, and the camp nurse said, you need to go sit down, and started checking me out and said, I think you are dehydrated. I've never been dehydrated before, so I didn't know what that meant. And so she had me drink like two gallons of Gatorade and replenish my electrolytes. And sure enough, I started to calm down again. I also learned years ago that you can tell like if you pinch the back of your hand, you can tell if you're dehydrated by how fast the, uh, how good the elasticity is of your skin, right? So you, you medical people know all this stuff. I didn't. 
And so you can physically, you can probably tell by looking at a person and how they're sweating or not sweating if they're dehydrated. You could probably tell from, from the elasticity of their skin or very other uh, tests that you could put on them. But how, do you, how can you tell if a person is spiritually dehydrated? Well, in some cases, I believe it's the same way. If you're spiritually dehydrated, first thing that's going to be affected is your heart. You're going to love people differently or love people less. You might have a little bit more anger being manifest in you. You might have more irritability. You might have more problems sleeping at night. You might have more anxiety or depression in your life if you're spiritually dehydrated. And so the only way to fix that is to drink some water, right? So return to the Father and replenish your electrolytes. Now, if you look over in John chapter 4, you have the story of the woman at the well who came to the well in the afternoon to get her water for the family, right? And Jesus met her, and he said to her something very unique. He says, if you drink, basically, if you drink this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink the water I give, you will never thirst again because I'm going to put a well inside of you that's going to spring up, and it's going to provide for you this ongoing water source that you need in your life. So Jesus does that. When we come to faith, he puts that water spring in us, and we have instant access to the Father anytime we want through that water source. We can replenish ourselves through prayer, Bible, meditation, whatever, through service. We can do those things. But here's the problem. There's a sin in this world. And you see, just because Christ puts this wellspring inside of us doesn't mean it's going to be constant no matter what you do. You still can affect that. Why is it that the water source in the baptistry uh, is shut off? Why is it that it's not continually pouring out? Because something's blocking it, right? I shut it off. Something's blocking the water flow. That's what sin does in your human life. When you sin and don't repent, don't confess, that blocks the water flow. And you get stopped up. You get dehydrated. And then you get spiritually dead until you get that, that 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 blockage out of the water source you're going to be just shriveling up spiritually so we're going to be studying for the next few weeks uncomfortable truths and i was focusing all about these scriptural truths about the things that we need to hear things we need to be reminded of and the blockage in my prayer life this weekend was the fact that we have to start with ourselves. We have to start with ourselves. Revival starts with me. Revival in your house starts with you. So naturally, in order to understand the truths of God, we have to be truthful about ourselves. We have to get real about our sin problem. In 1 John 1, 8 8 through 10, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned at all, then we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. That's the foundational truth for today. We are all sinners in the eyes of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We also have to be mindful of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. 
that we could add. But the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ is yours if you'll believe in him. So there's a couple of things that we need to talk about here. The first thing is this. When it comes to your individual sin, we know it's prevalent. We know it's real. We know it's there. We all sin. We all do. But what we don't acknowledge sometimes is that your sins do affect other people. Your sins do have an effect on other people. Because in this day and age, we like to think that this is my life. This is, this is my body. I can do with it whatever I want. If I want to saturate it with alcohol, I can do that. None of your business. If I want to smoke anything that grows in the, we- in the woods, <laughs> in the weeds, I can do that. <laughs> right? Because that's none of your business. This is my life, my body, right? If I want to drive 120 miles an hour on the Audubon, I can do that because this is my life. If I want to jump off my roof into a swimming pool 30 feet away, I can do that. We've seen videos on YouTube, right? Stupid. But they say, I can do these things because I'm my own person. This is my life. It has nothing to do with you, so butt out of my life. The problem is, is that sin does have a ripple effect upon your family and upon your church and upon others. And this is a sober truth that we need to be very cognizant of. In Luke 8, or let me back up. In Numbers 32, 23, it says, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. You can't hide it forever. In Luke 8, 17, it says, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. So here's the thing. If you've ever sinned in your life, somebody knows about it. And it's going to come back to bite you because somebody knows about it. Bless you. I want to tell you a couple stories here, uh, which I'm not going to go through it in great detail, but just to, just to remind you of these stories. In Judges chapter 6 and 7, there's a story of the Israelites getting ready to, to well, they had just fought I'm sorry, they're getting ready to fight Jericho and God's giving them their instructions on how to fight in order to win the city. And then after Jericho in chapter 7, they're going to go on and fight the city of Ai. So prior to to, uh, the the battle over Jericho in, in chapter 6, verse 18 of Judges, God says to Joshua, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of those things. Now this is the treasures And when they conquer Jericho and the walls fall down, there's a temptation to gather all of the the treasures and to steal some of it. But God said, that's mine. This first city after you cross the Jordan River is mine. All of those things are my tithe. The rest of the cities, you can have whatever you want. But the first fruits are for me. So we find out in chapter 7 and verse 1, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. One person, Achan, the son of Carmi, took some of those treasures for himself. He buried them in the floor of his tent, thinking nobody will ever know. But the Lord brought Joshua aside, and he said, hey, son, we need to have a talk. But before that would happen, it says that in chapter 7 that the Israelites went up to fight uh, the city of Ai, and that they had very few men, fighting men there, so they took a diminished army up against them. 
But when they got there, something happened. It says that, um, I keep looking as if I have it written down here. I don't. It says in chapter 7, verse 4 of Judges, 3,000 fighting men went up to fight. 36 of them were killed. And then when, they, when the news got back to Joshua, he wept. He, 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 he repented. He, he fasted and he prayed earnestly, God, why did you allow this to happen to us? And God made it very clear, because you all weren't faithful to me. And I could hear Joshua, if this were today, Joshua would say, but I didn't do it. It's not my fault. He did it. And Joshua said, or basically God was implying, if one person did it, you're all guilty. You will all be held accountable. Now, years ago when I was in Peoria, I got to go to, uh, to the, the Pekin prison, which was, I went to the women's camp. There was a federal prison there and then the women's camp. Uh, we went there to bring Crisillo to them. And so they actually let me, a Protestant, come in to bring Crisillo to the, the women prisoners. Many of them had children outside of the camp. Many of them had given birth in camp but were separated from their children, and many of them have been there for many years. It was interesting to me when I started talking to these women why they were there because, you know, that's what you're always curious about. Did you kill somebody? You know, did you steal something? And, and the women almost unanimously said this, we are here because we are guilty by association. Our husbands were selling drugs, and we didn't tell anybody. So do you see what I'm saying here? The sins of the fathers, the sins of the husband was being carried out through the family. Their sins hurt their wives and their siblings alike. And then we have people saying, well, it's nobody's business what I do. Well, it's everybody's business because it affects all of us. We go on a little bit further and we, we read in chapter 20 of, and verse 6 of Exodus. This is with the great Ten Commandments. And God said this in, in regards to idolatry. He said, all of you, nobody should ever bow down to those idols or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I punish the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and follow my commandments. So in the Ten Commandments, there's a provision that your sins could be carried down through the generations if you don't nip it in the bud. Now, we, we know this to be true. We go to AA, or some of them is who have ever been to AA. We go there and we find out that if we're alcoholics, there's a good chance that one of our parents were alcoholics or grandparents. And if you really explore your family tree, you will find that there may be several alcoholics that have lent their, their, their DNA to you, that you will be accessible to it. It happens. Adultery works the same way. It trickles down through the generations. Um, pagan worship can trickle down through the generations. Gambling addictions, any, any other type of illness, even illness can, like cancer. That's why when you go in the hospital, they take that, that history of everything you've done, everything your family's done. And then I want to remind you of a story in Jonah. And understand, I'm spending a lot of time with this because I'm trying to prove the point that your sins are not just your sins, that they have a ripple effect and they do harm other people. Jonah decided he was going to rebel against God. I refuse to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to preach the gospel to them. And so he went the opposite direction, got on a boat, headed to Tarshish, and there a massive storm came and started 
punishing that ship. And those workers on that ship, those sailors, had nothing to do with Jonah or his rebellion, but every one of them were being held accountable for it because they were providing for him. And they knew nothing about what they were doing. It wasn't until Jonah confessed his sin and and encouraged them to throw him over the boat did the storm finally cease. And the scriptures indicate that those men began worshiping God. Through Jonah's rebellion came salvation to those sailors. Interesting. So hopefully you're, you're in agreement at least that your sins do have the ability to harm others. It is possible. I've heard stories about this. It's hard to prove it. It's hard to connect the dots and say this is why, but it sure adds suspicion. In one of our churches in Kentucky, we had a woman who had a very, very serious alcohol problem. And she would leave the sanctuary several times during the sermon. And back then, I only talked for like 10 or 15 minutes. But she would go out in the car and hit the bottle and then come back in and sit in the back or she would go in the nursery and play with the children. This went on for years and years and years, and nobody ever said a word. Now, here's the problem with that at the front of the argument. Nobody was helping her with her problem by sweeping it under the rug. Secondly, they were setting themselves up for some kind of a a ripple effect by not dealing with a sin that was obviously manifest in their church family. I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a story that Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians, and he was very disappointed with them. He said, I hear that there is a sexually perverse person among you, and he is actively involved in this relationship with his mother, And you all aren't doing anything about it. In fact, you're boasting about it. And so he says this in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may have a new batch without yeast. You've heard the phrase, it only takes one apple, one bad apple to spoil the, the whole bunch, right? Only takes one. And, and when even in your refrigerator, let's say you have a bad stalk of celery and you put it next to brand new fresh celery, within just hours it seems that your, your good celery starts to show decay. That's just not right. But that's what happens in the body of Christ. Your sin has a negative effect on everyone here, but we're so pompous about it. We're so arrogant and we're so blind about it that we convince ourselves with the help of little demons that sit on our shoulder that it has nothing to do with anybody when in fact it is eroding at the very fabric and foundation of our entire existence. It has a very negative effect. So how do we fix it? By confession. By confession and repentance. And God washes all of that away. In Psalm 38, 18, it says this, I confess my iniquity I am troubled by sin. And I know there are people here today that are troubled by sin, but you're still trying to do your best to hide it. I I can't remember exactly how the phrase goes. What a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. 
That's what it is with sin. First is the little minor cover-up, but you've got to take dirt from over here to cover up this one. Then you left a hole, so now you've got to find dirt to cover up that hole to cover up this one. And so then you create another hole to cover up this one, this one, this one. And next thing you know, you are overwhelmed. You are so in deep over your head that you can't even get yourself, you can't, can't even sleep at night. That's not fair at all. Leviticus 26.40 says, But if they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant. I will not reject them. So the key phrase for me here is confess your sins and the sins of your ancestors. Did you know part of the the foundational religious practice of Judaism is that the priests would go to the temple and offer sacrifices on behalf of all of the people of Israel. The priests would would deliberately go into the temple in the presence of God and pray that all of the sins of the people would be put upon that sacrifice. He would intercede for them, and then they would sit back and hope and pray that their sacrifice was accepted. But then later, God started rebelling against that a little bit. He says, you know what? You offer me your sacrifices. I don't need more sacrifice. I want pure hearts. No, I'd rather just give another sacrifice, God. That's easier. It's it's better for me. I'll just give you, I'll give you another cow if you just let me be. Yes. God's like, yeah, that's what I need. It's more sacrifice. In Judges 10, 15, it says, But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So he raised up a deliverer. In Psalm 32, now this is a great verse. You'll hear me talk about it all the time. This is like, in counseling, I use this all the time with people. In Psalm 32, verses uh, 3 through 5, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So first, I wanted to establish that your sins do have a negative effect on other people your yeast could get worked into their dough and defile what they're trying to do spiritually. Secondly, I wanted to prove to you the fact that confession is very important and it is beneficial to every sinner. Through confession, God's grace falls upon us. Understand that confession, the definition of confession is to say to God what he already knows to be true about us. Confession in some cases is telling dad what you did when he already knows what you did, and therefore you confess it. Dad, I got a speeding ticket. Really? I didn't know that. But thank you, thankfully, I know the police in town, and they inform me of these things. Or I remember the one time in high school that I got caught with something I shouldn't have had, and by the time I got home, my dad already knew about it. Son, let's have a little chat. Yeah. We call those come-to-Jesus meetings. But what do we do next? This is where it gets difficult. This is where we find out just how sorry you are about the things that you've done and the harm that you've caused. 
Now, you know my history. I am like the chief of sinners in this place. I have done far worse than most of you will ever do. Of course, in God's eyes, he doesn't rate them from one to 10, but in our eyes, we do. And I'm telling you, I'm at the top of the list. I'm not boasting, I'm just repenting. But interesting enough that for me, what God does is he says, no, I don't want you just to confess to me. I want you to confess to everybody. I want you to stand up in front of the congregation. I want you to tell them what you've done. And I said, but why? I didn't even get caught. He said, do you really think that's what this is about? You see what, and you know that since I've been here, I, I confess my sin. I share with you the things I've done wrong, the mistakes I've made. The reason is because I believe God wants me to do that because it creates an atmosphere of community that is conducive for others to confess their sins. I remember one day when Scott Green stood up, he says, you know what? I got to get this off my chest. And he boldly confessed something that was struggling with him. And we were like, wow, that's almost the way it's supposed to be done. And so, you, you know, the Catholics, they'll go to their priests and they'll confess to their priests. And people will say, well, why do they do that? Why would confess the sin to another person? Because it's biblical. Now, you don't necessarily have to go to a priest, but it's very medicinal to confess your sins to one another. It's in James 5.16 that it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and for each other so that you may be healed. Because, you see, there's a, there's a, it's a possible connection of unhealth illness and disease could come upon you because you refuse to confess and repent of your sin. But if you will come to a group of people that you trust and believe in and love and support, and they love and support you, then you will have the freedom to say, folks, I need your help. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I've done. Now, I know that it's fear that prevents you from doing that. I've been there. I was scared to death the first day that I stood up and told people of my sexual abuse as a child. I was terrified. Didn't sleep the night before, but when I got it off my chest, those demons, they fled. I'm telling you, they ran. And I stood there completely, I felt completely naked like I had just taken off everything in front of them. And then slowly people came and they started saying, I've been there too. And then it made sense to me why this was so important. Ezekiel 18.21 says, But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and they keep my decrees and do what is right, the person will surely live. They will not die. In Leviticus 5.5 5, it says, When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. And then I want to share this last one with you, Matthew 3.6. Confessing their sins... They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Confessing their sins, they were baptized in the Jordan River. So we all know that you sin. We all know it. You all know that I sin. Hopefully I don't sin as often or as much, but then I just did it again with pride. That was a joke, by the way. But the fact is we all sin. 
One difference may be the fact that I do my very best to confess it all before you so that the devil can't use it against me and so that it clears the air and it makes it conducive for you to also follow suit. I believe that the ingredient that God was wanting me to talk about this morning was he wanted me to give you permission and give you a platform that if you feel so boldly about your need for forgiveness that you would use this opportunity to come and confess your sins before your church family. I know that's bold, and I know you're scared, but I think that may be what it takes to bring you healing. This is very, uh, this is very uncomfortable. That's why I named it this, because that's God's purpose. He doesn't want you to be comfortable in your sin. He wants to make you uncomfortable so that you don't want to continue to live in it. Now, here's the other thing that God's taught me is, yes, I can confess to God all of my sins, and he will hear them and he will forgive them. But it's not the same as if I were to confess in front of my brothers and sisters. Why is that? Because by confessing to God, I can still hold back with the option of continuing in my sin. But if I confess it to you, all of a sudden I have 50 to 70 accountability partners who are going to question me about my ongoing behavior. And I think that's why a lot of people just zip their lips. So my question to you is how badly do you want to get rid of that sin in your heart? that is corrupting those around you, hurting your church family, hurting your community and your children? How long do you want to keep playing that game? Wouldn't you rather just get up and confess it, get it off your chest, and let God heal you and your church family love you? So with this, I invite you to come. Would anybody care to take me up on the opportunity? So I get to decide how long we're going to be awkward. God says, keep sitting there until they come. Oh, no, you don't have to tell me. Um, I confess bad attitudes and errors from time to time, sin and disobedience from here on. And instead of speaking up for what I God, know God wants me to do, I stay comfortable. And I just am quiet. I hope that hurts as well, and I'm quiet about it. I mean, the Lord has shown me that there are people that need to do this.
move on. Let's pray, and then Carrie will lead us in our closing, okay? I pray that you'll continue to challenge each of us in our individual walk with you. And I pray that where there is unconfessed sin, Lord, that you will not let them sleep, that you will not let them rest until they get it out of their system. Lord, remind them this is for their good, not for the need of the church, but for their good. Bring healing to those, Lord, who are afflicted. Bring peace to all of those who struggle with these issues. Help us to be very truthful about who we are in relationship to you, and we know that you will bless us. Please come, Holy Spirit, and heal our wounded hearts, forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we may serve you better. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right.